ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13. If you can get your Bibles to open anywhere but Mark, after these uh, many months in Mark. This summer, uh, you know that my preference is to begin at uh, the beginning of a book and go uh, straight through. I think that... uh, in, in terms of addressing the whole counsel of God, it's a, it's a discipline that helps me as a, a pastor uh, to, in one sense, gently be disciplined to address uh, virtually every subject. But rather than begin a series this summer, uh, a sequential series like that, I'm going to do one of my favorite things in terms of summer preaching, and that is to uh, preach from selected psalms. Now, Martin Luther said that the psalms are a little Bible and a summary of the Old Testament. Uh, There is a method that I plan to use in terms of how to pick these psalms, uh, in terms of the, the structure of the book of Psalms, uh, there are five books within the Psalms. You may or may not have ever seen this. We don't necessarily see the divisions here. Uh, But Psalm 1 through 41 is book 1. 42 through 72 is book 2. Book 3 is 73 through 89. And then 90 through 106 is book 4, and 107 to 150 uh, is the fifth book. And each book, although there seem to be some exceptions uh, within that book, each one has a slightly different character, and that's one reason what I plan to do is uh, each week pick one from book 1, and then next week uh, we will be in book 2 and book 3 and so on, and then after Five weeks, we will go back to book one, because there are there's slightly different approaches in terms of uh, the psalms. All of the psalms in uh, book one were written by David. And by the way, I'll tell you a little bit about the characteristics of the various books as we move through uh, the summer. Uh, but the first book are all attributed to David. Uh, and they basically celebrate, and book two is, is similar as well, they celebrate uh, Israel's golden age. It was during a time when they had a united monarchy, and uh, the tendency is for even those that begin as laments, you know, sadnesses, end in praise. And we're going to see just a a wonderful example of that today in Psalm 13. So let's give our attention to this portion of God's Word. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? 
how long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. My enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for preserving these psalms, these songs, prayers, to be used in worship of you, even as today we have done. We pray, Lord, that you would never let us skip over or just read through these without grasping the emotion behind them, that you would teach us, use them in our lives, draw us to you through them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope what jumps out immediately when you see these words, when you hear this read, are David's feelings. If you read a psalm like this, Without feeling, you are missing the point. And we've got to cope with what he was going through here. How could he say some of these things to God, his God? This was preserved for us under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. He wanted us to hear what David was feeling, to see how David approached him. And so, let's look as we see, first of all, his feeling as it begins is just a sense of feeling forgotten by God. Look at the first part of verse 1. How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? Now, throughout the Psalms, we see a real honesty of feeling. And, and you probably know that this is in a poetic section of the Word of God, considered poetry. And yet that doesn't make it any less inspired by God. 
And so he asks this question, in fact, he asks it four times, how long in these first two verses? Now, that indicates to me (laughs) that this must have been a prolonged thing that he was going through. A a follower of Christ, uh, one who is in relationship with God, doesn't immediately jump to this conclusion. We may, because of some circumstance, we may pray about something, and when we don't get an answer as quickly as we would like, we may say, wow, God, you've, you know, you've been silent on this. But we typically are not going to jump to the conclusion that not only has he forgotten me, but worse than that, are you going to forget me forever? Do you see how deep this feeling is for him? And so evidently, he was going through a prolonged period of this sense. He felt forgotten. Now, remember this. Just because he felt forgotten doesn't mean he was forgotten. That's kind of the tricky part when we say, well, this is inspired by God and so on. But this is a reflection of a real man's feelings. And it doesn't prove that in any sense he was forgotten. In fact, he was not. We see all over the scripture places where people, even if you remember during Lent leading up to uh, Easter, we talked about Christ on the cross, feeling of forsakenness even though he wasn't forsaken. What, what the Psalms are is they're, they're an honest cry from the heart. They're not all meant to be theological absolutes. They're songs and prayers to be sung. How wonderful this morning to be able to sing Psalm 13 to that haunting tune, well put with... Uh, with the psalm. But that's, that's the way that uh, this psalm has been used down through uh, the centuries. We see the de- his depths at this point. Being forgotten by God would be bad enough, but to think it might actually be forever shows how deep it was for him. Now, here's the basic question that he's, uh, is implied behind what he's saying. Father, I'm your child. What's going on here? Why am I still going through this? Whatever it was he was going through. And by the way, we we can't really nail that down. We don't know exactly what was behind this. And then we move on and we see that not only did he feel forgotten, but he was feeling deserted, separated, faithless. How long will you hide your face from me? Now, have you ever been praying 
and felt like, I, I don't believe my prayers are getting any higher than this ceiling. <laughs> I'm not sure they're reaching the ceiling. Most anyone who has prayed consistently has had that feeling at some point. You know there's a God, but he doesn't seem all that real at that moment. I've seen uh, a bumper sticker. Maybe you've seen it. And by the way, I haven't seen it in our parking lot, so if you have it, don't feel like you've got to run out and scratch it off, okay? Uh, so, but I've seen this bumper sticker that says, if you feel God is far from you, guess who moved? Well, there's probably some truth in that, but unfortunately it... It can be a guilt-producing bumper sticker, and I'm not all that for guilt-producing bumper stickers. I'm not sure how, how much good they do. The implication is you got a problem. Now, there's ultimate truth behind that. But, ultimately, we need to understand that uh, that's not necessarily the case. Think about Job. That's the kind of thing that his friends would have said to him. Job, God's fine. You've just moved far from him. That's why you're going through these things. Job's friends were wrong. And so we've got to be careful making these kinds of presumptions. Job hadn't moved far from God, but he was just in one of those phases of life that it was hard to deal with. But God was there all along, and we see that as we see the big picture, as we back up and see the the panorama of the book of Job. Listen to C.S. Lewis in A Grief Observed. He, He tells about such an experience uh, when he, had, he was in profound grief over the death of his wife, a wife that he had waited so long in his life to have, and then she died. He said this, Meanwhile, where's God? And by the way, C.S. Lewis loved the Lord when he was saying this. Where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him. You will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. A vivid picture, isn't it? After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble. 
Now that's C.S. Lewis, in essence, writing a psalm to God. Saying, this is how it feels right now in this profound grief that I am going through. It hurts, and I can't seem to find where God is. Seems like when everything's going well, he's so easy to find. And, and now in my desperate times, he slammed the door, bolted it. And then there's silence. David goes on, talks about his mind running wild. Uh, the first part of verse 2, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? Now, this is not insanity. It's what most people struggle with at some point, and that's our minds racing in the wrong direction. It can happen during the day when we actively think in a wrong way. You know what? It can happen right in a worship service. Your mind is just racing about something you're dealing with that you've got to go back to tomorrow or that you face this week. And you can't stop it. You know you're here to worship and you can't seem to stop your mind. Or it can happen during the day when you overanalyze something. You know, you've just been in some kind of a situation and you can't quit thinking about it. And you're saying, well, then I should have said this and then he would have said and then, you know, and go back and forth. Or at least for me, the very worst is in the middle of the night. In the darkness either when you're trying to go to sleep and you can't or you wake up and you're wide awake and your mind is just racing and you just can't stop it. That's what he's saying. How long do I have to go through this? And then he's also feeling defeated. This last part of verse 2. How long will my enemy triumph over me? He feels like his enemies keep winning. Now, most of us don't have literal enemies out there, at least that are are in battle with us. We may have somebody that doesn't like us or whatever. But most of us aren't feeling exactly what David did. And without trying to spiritualize it too much, so the greatest enemy of the believer is the evil one. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says of him. The devil is the adversary of our souls. He can use our temperaments and our physical condition. He so deals with us that we allow our temperament to control and govern us instead of keeping temperament where it ought to be kept. There's no end to the way the devil produces spiritual depression. By the way, that's the book that it's from. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. We must always bear him in mind. So Martin Lloyd-Jones is is saying there's, there's two things that he loves to use, and that's our own temperament, because some, some are prone to depression. It's just the way you are. And it's easy to slip into that way. 
And if that's the case, he says, well, of course, the evil one's going to use that. But he said there's another thing that the evil one loves to use as well. And that is physical conditions. Could be pain. Could be a disease. Could be a chronic problem. Charles Spurgeon, who we generally think of as one of the greatest evangelical leaders in the 19th century. But he was prone to severe bouts of depression. Many believe, and I would probably join this group, that a lot of it had to do with his physical condition. He suffered from gout. His joints were severely inflamed. Too much uric acid in the blood. It just drained his vitality. And often threw him into depression. Can't you imagine that Satan just loves to do that? with someone like this who walks so closely with Jesus. And then David is feeling at the end of hope. He says, look on me, verse 3, and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. See what he's saying? Don't pass over that. God, if you don't give me some light here, then death would be better. I would rather die than to go on this way. This is a man after God's own heart. And he's feeling these depths. Verse 4, my enemy will say, I've overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. He is at the end of his rope. (laughs) You ever been on a rope swing and slide down? (laughs) At the end of the rope and sliding, losing it. That's how he feels at this point. C.S. Lewis again. By the way, this is a follow-up to the earlier quote that I gave you. He, He said, it's not so much that I am worried about losing my salvation or losing my faith or losing my belief in God. He said, that's not the thing that I am so much in danger of. He said, the real danger for me is coming to believe some very dreadful things about God. I am afraid that I will conclude not, well, I guess there's no God after all. He he doesn't think he's going to conclude that. But he might conclude, oh, so this is what God's really like. I shouldn't deceive myself any longer. 
You see what he's saying? That's the danger many times for a believer. Not that we're going to lose our faith, but that we're going to say, oh, okay, he's that kind of a father. He sees me here in all of this pain, all of this distress, and evidently doesn't care. Now, what did David do? Well, he did do some things right. And I want us to see. Look at verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Let me start right there before I go any further. For he has been good to me. You know what our tendency is? I hear this a lot. When something, we we pray for something and that is God's will because it comes to pass, what do we say? Oh, God is so good. Isn't God good? Now, that's true. But what's the implication? Well, the implication is if he hadn't done what we wanted him to do or what we thought best, well, God's not so good. Now, we don't say that. But that's the implication. If we only say it when things are going well. I love the old saying. God is good all the time. Say that with me. God is good all the time. That's what we've got to decide. Not God is good when He does what I tell Him to do. (laughs) Or God is good when things are going my way. We've got to have in our mind... And evidently David did, long before that saying, God is good all the time. Job, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. God is good. David did not let his feelings win. Now, obviously... He felt deeply. He didn't ignore his feelings. He didn't stuff his feelings. But neither was he ruled by them. I see Christ followers all the time that let their feelings win out and it paralyzes them and stunts their faith. Now what makes me say he didn't let his feelings win? Well, first of all, he prayed. Some would say, well, you know, that's a pretty whiny prayer. And I would say, well, so what? At least he didn't pout. And that's what way too many people do. They get mad and they pout, in other words, to God. They may not pout to everybody else. That's where they whine. (laughs) 
but they quit talking to God. He's not listening anyway. David would have none of that. He prayed. He continued to talk to God. And that leads us to the second part. He was honest with God. And I would emphasize that. We're going to see that again and again in the Psalms, being honest with God. I often have people in my office tell me how they feel about God. And sometimes they're pretty angry or disappointed or feeling some of the things David did. And usually I will say, well, have you told him so? And often the answer is, oh, I couldn't say that to him. And then depending on the mood of that moment, I may say, do you think he doesn't know already? Just because you don't say it out loud? And I will tell them, look, I understand why you feel that way at this moment. But here's one thing I know. God is a whole lot more understanding than I am. So if I understand, I promise you, he understands how you feel. Tell him. Paul Turnier said, where there is no longer any opportunity for doubt, there's no longer any opportunity for faith either. In other words, if his presence is always abundantly clear, then we, all we have to do is walk by sight. It's those times where it's not as clear that we've got to grow in our faith. And then David held on to what he knew to be true. Remember, he's the author of Psalm 23. He knew God. He knew him deeply. And most of us know a whole lot more truth about God than we practice. What did he know? Well, just from this psalm, we know he knew his source of hope. That's why he was saying this to God. You are my source. I've got to have light from you. He knew of God's unfailing love. He knew of his salvation. And he knew of God's goodness. Professor Mark Futato wrote a book on psalms. He said this, the, the book of Psalms as a whole goes from lamentation to praise. That's what the Psalms do. This Psalm goes from lamentation to praise. And then he goes on, he says, you know what? The life of the Lord Jesus goes from lamentation, sorrow, to praise and victory, resurrection and ascension. And our lives go from lamentation to praise. Maybe you're struggling with some of those feelings some of those emotions because of what you're going through. You need to know this. 
I can't tell you how long you're going to have to deal with it. I can't possibly know that. For some people, it's a very long time, and for some people, it is virtually all of their life. But I can tell you that if you pull back the curtain on what you know about God, you will see that though sometimes he may be a little bit veiled, the Lord Jesus is there. Surely, he's with you. And he will always be. Let's bow together.